welcome to Tardigrade Talks. I'm your host, Dr. Jody Samra, and this is a podcast for anyone interested in cultivating greater psychological health, wellness, and resilience. In each episode, I'll share authentic and thought-provoking conversations with inspiring guests, along with evidence-based skills, strategies, and approaches you can use to cope with the stresses of life and enhance your personal and workplace resilience. In this episode, I'm very excited to share insights from a conversation with my guest, Justine Kennedy. Justine is 24 years old and she's married. She just graduated last month from a Master of Social Work degree and she works in the Indigenous Student Center at the University of Waterloo. Justine is the eldest of 14 children. And perhaps most impressively, this young woman is raising her seven young brothers, all under the age of 10 with the youngest still in diapers. She's doing it with what's called a customary care agreement designed to help keep children who can't be with their parents connected to their communities and their families. Justine has a very powerful story to share of moving through her own adversity and using those experiences to help stimulate important conversations around policy change as it pertains to our child protection system. Justine, hello. And first of all, thank you so much for making time for me in your extremely busy schedule. Not a problem. Happy to be here. You sound very calm for somebody that has seven little ones in your environment. (laughs) I have to be. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any like immediate tricks right now for anyone that's listening that has more than a few at home? (laughs) Um, I guess just take a deep breath. It's, they're not going to be little forever. Um, yeah, that's about all I can offer right now. (laughs) Very wise advice. Yeah. Breathe and keep that perspective. Right. Well, Justine, let's start by talking about your childhood and background, um, and, and share your first few years of life and, and memories about your childhood. Um, I guess. There's different parts of my childhood that I kind of compartmentalize. Um, There's the period of time where I lived with my mom. Um, We briefly lived on reserve for a while, Um, spent some time living in a small town, not that far from the reserve. So it was quite uh, racist at times. Um, There's a period of time where I was living with my dad and my stepmom and some of my siblings Um, about three hours away from the rest of my family. And there I found more opportunity, but at the same time, like there is also a lack of connection almost. Um, And I often found myself like longing for the company of my other siblings that were still living with my mom. And you yourself, Justine, experienced apprehension from your mom at the age of six, is that right? Yes, very briefly. Myself and my sisters were apprehended, and I don't remember it overly well. Like, I have this um, memory of looking out the rearview window um, as we were driving out of town, and not like we weren't sure where we were going. Um, My sisters were really quiet on the car ride, and looking forward, all I could see were two social workers. Um, And I can't even remember what they were talking about, but it was a very quiet, solemn. car ride. And and talk about your kind of early exposure, kind of early in life to mental health and substance use and addiction. Um, I guess it was kind of something that I didn't realize was necessarily, um, I assumed it was something everyone experienced, if that makes sense. 
mm-hmm. growing up surrounded with substance use and alcohol dependency and just the general like kind of party life that I witnessed um, my mom going through periods of growing up I just assumed that everyone's parents did that and it wasn't until like much later that I realized that my childhood wasn't really a normal childhood in that sense yeah we really what's familiar and what we know is all we know right and we we have these assumptions that this is what life is like for all especially when we're little ones and our our kind of bubble is that immediate that immediate network in our life isn't it for sure um, now tell me what life then for you kind of looked like as you moved through your elementary and high school years. So I started living with my dad when I was seven, around six to seven years old. Um, from there, I went from a school that was very racist. Um, I was not doing well in school at all. I had like C's and D's and in general, I felt very stupid. Um, A lot of my friends' parents didn't want me playing with them because I was just the, you know, neighborhood res kid. Um, And a lot of my non-Native friends, um, I wasn't allowed to go play at their house or anything. And that was vastly different moving um, in with my dad because I attended an elementary school where the teachers actually encouraged me, where I was able to make friends without fear of rejection. And my grades, like, greatly improved. I still had a lot of anxiety from um, that period of time where I was living with my mom. And I would often cry when I got frustrated with schoolwork because it just triggered so many um, memories of asking teachers for help at, like, my first grade school and not receiving that help. Mm. When it kind of teaches us over time, doesn't it, to not reach out when you reach out and the needs that you have as a young child are not met, um, if your kind of cultural identity is ignored and not understood. I mean, we start to internalize that, don't we, over time? And and then kind of the habit becomes to, to not even reach out because you're not sure you'll even get the help. Absolutely. And experiencing racism at such a young age when you don't even know what racism is. Um, and that's why you're being treated different is also like it has a great impact as well. How did you make sense of your um, kind of cultural identity, your indigenous background? Like what did you, when you look back now and think as a little one, what, you know, what did you know? What did you understand? At what point did you start to realize, my goodness, this isn't how people should be treating other people? Honestly, I don't think it was until high school where I really started piecing together bits of racism. Maybe middle school. Um, I had some friends, some some supposed friends that had spread rumors about me. Um, and in particular, like regarding my race um, and different stereotypes there. But I was a fairly well-grounded kid. Like um, my mom tried to teach me the language and the culture as much as she could. My dad because I'm from two different Indigenous backgrounds. Um, I'm Oneida and Ojibwe. So um, both of my parents made sure that I was really well acquainted with both sides of my culture and that I knew where I came from. I knew my place in this world. And I had a really good grasp of that growing up. Um, So I guess it kind of like, I wanted to be friends with everyone, but I couldn't realize why people didn't want to be friends with me, if that makes sense. Hmm. What were the, you know, when we think about racism, so many different manifestations. I mean, there's the overt and explicit, right? The kind of in our face racism, but then also the kind of insidious, subtle, implicit things that people say and do or don't do or don't say. And so tell me about what your experiences were like, Justine, and, and the kind of range of, of racism that you experienced. Um, in a general sense, like as a child, um, I would ask my teacher for help. And this other child um, who wasn't Indigenous would ask the teacher for help as well. And the teacher would tell me to go sit down and that she would um, be there when she could, but then she'd never come over. And this happened like multiple times where I would go up to her um, 
almost every five minutes asking her for help. And then she'd just send me, send me away, um, being placed constantly at the back of the classroom in kindergarten. I remember this very well. Uh, the teacher singled me out as the troublemaker, even though like I was the one being teased, I wasn't doing any of the teasing and I had to go sit and time out in the kindergarten classroom. Um, as I got older, I've had people name call. Um, there's a lot of fetishizing, I guess, that I also experience, whether that be on social media or whether that just be um, mostly people I don't know very well. Um, but there have been a few instances of people that I do know. Yeah, I'm just going to leave that thought. Yeah. Uh, and how, I mean, how, what are the range of emotions you've experienced as you go through, you know, when you look back and and think of, you know, the range of impacts on, on you emotionally, your own confidence, the way that you saw yourself? There's definitely a range for sure. I hate to say that I'm kind of like used to it by now, hmm. um, but certain instances will throw me off. Like if I'm going to buy um, clothing for my brothers and I end up getting followed around the store, um, it'll still kind of throw me for a loop. But I feel like I've also been desensitized enough to it that I can, like when that happens, I can, you know, go up to the person and address them directly about it. Or I do feel comfortable enough going up to a manager and saying like, hey, your employee is doing this, just so you know. And that takes a lot of courage to do that, first of all. And so, yeah, tell me about, you know, an in, in example of you doing that and how, I mean, one is where do you draw on that courage to, to go confront someone, right? Because most of the time, the, the experience is to just walk away, right? Because it can instill so much shame and anxiety and but where do you draw on that courage and and how have you found the response to be when you've actually called somebody out on on behaviors i find a lot of times the response is defensiveness or um just a general lack of like wanting to engage the person so for example um i was at this one store buying shoes with my sister and she, she looks very indigenous, like she has longer hair than I do and like more prominent features in that sense. So I was with my sister and we were looking at um, rain boots, I believe, for the kids. And this one employee um, had asked us like, oh, do you need help with anything? And I said, no, thank you. We're just looking around. Um, and then we proceeded to uh, keep walking around the store, looking at shoes. And at one point we split up. And the lady had kept following my sister around the store for probably a good solid 15 minutes. But that kind of like, it really irked me. And it's easier to stand up for other people, I find personally, than it is to stand up for myself, especially when it comes to my family, because I am very protective over my siblings. So when I was cashing out, I brought it up to the cashier and she was like, oh, I can go get my manager. Um, and I told her about like, my experience, my sister's experience with this lady that's following us around the store, but not anyone else. I'm not sure if this is like what your employee intended to do, but this is like, this is a very uncomfortable experience for us. And it feels like she's profiling us um, because we're indigenous. And she was just kind of like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Like, I'll make sure to talk to the employee about it after. But yeah, that was kind of like the more direct times that I've stood up in that sense. Yeah, well, 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 good for you. And I mean, take so much courage, right? And the way that you're describing it to be factual, right? And describing what you're seeing, uh, being civil and respectful and, and kind about it, but also holding up this mirror, right? To the behaviors that are, are occurring. I mean, it's interesting you said, you know, and I think so this resonates for, for probably so many of us that that ability to find, you know, whatever it is within us to speak up for somebody else, you know, often for some strange reason feels easier than advocating for our own self. When you think about how 
your emotional reactions um, have evolved over time. And so you talked about when you were young, that kind of anxiety, right, that would build up and, and probably, you know, of course, when we're young, we don't have that vocabulary to even be able to articulate our experiences, even though we know, you know, we're being singled out when we didn't do anything. But now when you think as you've gotten older and kind of moved through your teens and into your early 20s, how has the impact on you evolved and and change, Justine? I found as I got older, I found more coping mechanisms, I guess, and ways to work through my anxiety. Like my anxiety is very much still there. Um, there are certain days where I'll just be really irrationally anxious about um, certain things. Like if the windows in the upstairs are up unlocked, um, that I should like lock them before bed so the boys don't open them and like fall out or something. Um, so I'll kind of like, I still have those habits for sure. Um, but I've also found that as I've gotten older, I found the courage to do more things that um, I've always wanted to do when I was younger, but I didn't really necessarily have the means to do. So um, being able to get out of the house by myself. Um, in January, I started taking up pole fitness as a way to... Um, get more exercise into my daily life, but also to empower myself as well, because I definitely wasn't the type of person to go to the gym or really work out, but I found the lack of um, movement in my day-to-day -day life was very, um, it was making my anxiety worse. Hmm. Yeah, we know that movement and, and what come, comes along with, with movement is that confidence kind of that we get in our body, right? That feeling where we feel kind of when we feel a little stronger and healthier and kind of more solid and comfortable in our body, that starts to have this ripple effect on different parts of our emotional experience. For sure. Yeah. And what are the things over the years when you think of your anxiety and, and what um, what has worked for you? And, and when you've started to um, learn about your anxiety and learn about what things trigger it and also what else helps, what are what are the tips you have for anybody that's struggling with anxiety? Oh, gosh, that's a broad question. Um, finding ways to kind of um, like meditate and almost do like a self-assessment when um, I start feeling off, I'll usually, you know, close my eyes and do a quick like, okay, what part of me is feeling anxious right now? Is my breathing regulated? Is, are my hands shaking? Are my hands cold? Um, and from there, I kind of have developed different ways to address those. So like if, I, if I'm feeling lightheaded and dizzy, then um, I'll do a mental checklist of, okay, did I eat this morning? Did I have lunch? If I haven't, I'll go get a snack. Um, did I drink enough water today? Go get a drink of water. Um, sometimes if it's really bad, like I've gotten into the habit of stretching to kind of um, create those endorphins to help calm me down. Yeah, that, that self-awareness piece is so absolutely critical, right? It's hard for us to even know what to change until we give ourselves that moment, right? To pause, step back, that kind of body scan as you're describing, that kind of scanning of other factors that may be contributing, right? And the usual suspects for, for all of us when we have lack of sleep, when we haven't eaten well, when we have some other stress going on, when we have some external pressure, right? And then kind of orienting your mind to thinking what is within my control, right? What can I solve? Is it eating food now because my blood sugars are dropping and that's making me irritable and more anxious. Um, and it sounds like that's something that you've kind of really kind of put value on learning and cultivating over the years. Absolutely. And especially with taking care of the boys now, like I have to, I found I really have to be on top of my own mental and physical health before being able to help them with theirs. gears a bit and um 
talk about the boys, your, your seven younger brothers. Now, in December 2017, you received a phone call from your sister who was crying, saying that Children's Aid Society was taking your brothers away. And this call was to set a series of events in, a mo in motion that would dramatically alter your life at a very, very rapid pace. Um, tell me more about that call and the days and weeks that followed. So um, I received a call from my sister saying that the boys are being apprehended. Um, and at that time, I was in my third year of my undergrad. And I was kind of faced with a choice because I was working part time at the university and I was also getting ready to write exams. So that was a bit complicated for me because that was a very busy week. And I wasn't aware that the situation at my mom's house had gotten so bad to the point where the Children's Aid Society needed to intervene. Um, so I felt really torn. I um, had brought it up to my partner um, on like what to do. And he suggested we just like wait it out and see. Um, I was in contact with my mom and she said, yep, the boys were apprehended. Um, three of them were placed with a family friend. One of my sister's relatives and then the other three boys were placed in two different foster care homes um, about an hour from where my mom was so that was on a monday monday night and then by wednesday i decided to take the train down to my mom's to help her um, get the boys back because the children's aid society had told her her house was in unacceptable condition and that she needed to clean her house before um the boys would be returned so when i got there it was basically um get right to work start cleaning start organizing and then the decision was made to return the boys friday morning and they were definitely very changed from it the older boys were kind of i don't want to say used to it but they were kind of you know disassociated from the apprehension um, mind you, the older ones did go to someone that they knew, although they had said a few times when they got back that they didn't want to go there again mm. um, for that long. And the younger boys were significantly different from that. They were really clingy with my mom. Um, the youngest kind of like went into a state of shock where he would just like stare at the wall or stare at the ceiling. And he was about, he would have been about 11 months or so at the time. And there was like a point where like I asked him if he was okay and I started like rubbing his back because he was laying on his stomach in the crib, um, just like staring straight ahead. And it was at that point that he like started to cry. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was kind of like a traumatic experience for oh, everyone. More than more than kind of for the for all of you. And my goodness, I mean, what you know? Let's go back to this train ride that you're taking and you're going out. And I mean, what were all the things that were going through your head, Justine? And what did you know? I mean, kind of leading up to that, how much contact did you have with your mom? Did you have any sense of what level things had been getting to for your brothers in the home? Um, it was kind of a situation where I felt really guilty because, you know, I had moved probably about an eight-hour drive away from them um, to go to school just to be able to assert my own self sense of identity. Mm. And I felt guilty that I wasn't there um, to support my mom the way she needed to be supported. Um, and especially with the boys because she wasn't getting very much help um, in that sense with them. So I felt a great amount of guilt for the longest time um, that I wasn't there or I felt like I wasn't where I should have been. Mm. Um, I felt very like selfish in a sense. Yeah, guilt is a, it can be such a insidious, toxic emotion, can't it? And it's that feeling that on one hand, as you said, you were trying to assert a life for yourself and cultivate your own identity and, and be able to kind of create your own future. And yet also knowing that, you know, and it's not a but, it's an and, and then you had your siblings that were in this other circumstance and because of their age in circumstance, of course, much more vulnerable. And so I guess, how have you, you know, how did you reconcile that kind of those days, right? When you were thinking on one hand, this pull to live your own life and create your own life, um, yet also try to be able to be there and, and support the ones that you love. I kind of kept reassuring myself that 
if I had stayed closer, I wouldn't have had the same opportunities as I would now. I probably would not have gotten my Bachelor of Indigenous Social Work. I definitely wouldn't have been moved to do my master's after that. So that was a huge part in realizing I was where I needed to be. I wouldn't have been able to support the boys the same way now as like if the situation was different, if I did move closer to home, if I had supported my mom more. Tell me about then the the events leading up to the boys coming to live with you and your husband on a on a permanent basis. So we had maintained contact with my mom um, and the worker as well because we had told the worker from Children's Aid Society that um, you know if they had made an attempt to find a kinship placement before they moved to apprehension, like I I would have offered my home as an alternative for the boys. Um, because when they were first apprehended, like, there wasn't any indication of um, them apprehending. It was a matter of them um, showing up as a result of a call from my sister, actually, who wasn't home at the time. And they had decided to come back later to apprehend the boys um, because of the condition of the house. So if they had, you know, spoken to my mom saying, like, hey, this is... um, these are unacceptable conditions and like, is there someone that can come support you? Whatever, like I would have made the effort to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, So that situation could have been avoided, but it was clear that over the course of January and early February that my mom wasn't um, able to maintain the home in the way that it needed to be maintained with taking care of all of my brothers. Um, So that's when the worker called me up and I was in class at the time. Um, we were tentatively prepping for having to take the boys in. Um, we had that discussion where um, if it came down to it, like we would have, and it turned out that we did. Hmm. Um, but I was in class and the worker had asked me like, hey, this isn't working out with your mom. Um, are you still willing to take, your, take in your brothers? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, hung up the phone because she was going to do what she needed needed to do, get in contact with the band rep, um, start that process, and also speak to my mom. Um, and I kind of went back to class like in shock, and I told uh, my professor what just happened, and she was like, anything you need, like let me know. Um, go home, go do what you need to do. Um, she was very accommodating. Um, and a huge support because I had her a few times in my fourth year classes as well. But yeah, over the course of probably three days from the time that we got the phone call to the time that um, they actually came to live with us, we had days to prep. And during that time, um, I was still working. I was still in school full-time. We were trying to figure out furniture and baby proofing um we weren't sure how we were going to get beds for the boys we weren't sure day to day how we would care for the boys um because like we were both only 21 at the time yeah my goodness 21 years old (laughs) what and and shock is an understatement just to say (laughs) i mean what i mean what were all the what are the discussions that are going on in those three days you know bring me into kind of your partner's experience and and you know the thoughts and the worries and and all of the things that must have been swimming around your mind in those few days yeah um my partner was way more focused and accommodating and on task than I was. Oh yeah. <laughs> I was freaking out. My partner was like, well, I'm just going to quit my job at Lowe's and I'm going to take care of them full time. You need to finish school. Like that's not even a question. So that's what ended up happening. They gave him an extended leave at first. And then it became obvious that with me being in school full time, that he wouldn't be able to go back. So that's when he formally quit his job. 
Yeah, honestly, most of the conversations were just like, okay, where are we going to sleep? Where are the boys going to sleep? Okay, yeah, all the logistics, right? Of those, we think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? That kind of basics of how are we going to logistically orchestrate this? And I imagine it, you know, took quite some time for your mind and head and heart to even catch up to, to, you know, really what kind of things we're going to start to look like in this new life. And my goodness, what a partner, first of all, um, that just sounds so immensely supportive of you and your education and, and your family. Yeah, I had the very fortunate opportunity to marry my childhood best friend. So he's he's been through all of it. He was well aware of my family dynamics um, all throughout middle school, through high school. Um, he supported me through a lot of it. So, yeah, I'm very lucky there. What's been the toll and impact on your relationship as a young couple that's just starting out your life together and creating your own, you know, kind of family and family home? I mean, how has that evolved and shifted and grown? And it's actually grown and evolved and shifted quite significantly. Um, friendship was like kind of always the basis of our relationship. But kind of throwing seven kids into that mix um, definitely took a toll on our relationship. Um, we kind of came from families where we didn't really know what a healthy relationship was. So all throughout high school, um, our relationship wasn't that healthy. We fought, we argued constantly, um, but we were still committed to like figuring out what an actual healthy relationship is and working towards that. Um, and it's a lot harder when, you know, your parents haven't really shown you that and you kind of have to figure it out yourself. So there's been periods of when things are really good and when we're really struggling. Um, a year after the boys came to live with us, we kind of realized that monogamy wasn't really working for us in a sense. We felt we kind of became too dependent on each other. And I personally didn't have a very good idea of who I was as a person, but we still wanted to be together. We just felt like we we're too reliant on each other in a sense. Hmm. So we actually decided to start exploring polyamory and we've been kind of exploring it for the past year and a half, which has gone well. And it's, it's actually transformed our relationship to be infinitely healthier. We communicate way more. We have a network of people that support us and support the boys. And it's a, it's been quite a journey. It sounds like it. Um, I mean, talk about that network and who, you know, who around you has helped you through the most challenging of times and, and who you lean on, you know, kind of in addition to the two of you, um, who's around you, who helps, who supports, who do you go to for parenting advice and, and all of the things that you, you had, would have had all of these firsts, right? With the little ones. Yeah, for sure. Um, my dad's been a huge support to us. Um, especially since we moved back to my, um, well, I refer to it as my hometown. And I wasn't born here, but I spent most of my life here. Um, my dad's been a significant help. When we moved, he would help us with our Costco runs because I didn't get my G2 until last month, actually, um, because of some um, anxiety around vehicles that I had experienced from like a car accident when I was um, about 16. Hmm. So, um, yeah, uh, my sister was living with us for a period of time and that was really helpful, but she eventually decided that she wanted to go out on her own. Um, she has a son as well, so we supported her as best we could. And, um, ultimately we decided it would be better for everyone if she had the opportunity to, you know, figure out her life and, um, take on more adult responsibilities herself. Hmm. Um, one of my partners has become a pretty important role in the boys' lives. Um, part of our transition into polyamory was um, me not really having an opportunity to explore my sexuality 
as a child. So I identify as like bisexual. Um, I prefer the term two-spirit when it comes to that aspect, um, just because I feel it's more encompassing of, you know, the masculine and fem feminine energies that I feel. Um, and there are a lot of tendencies where I kind of like bounce between both. Um, so one of my female partners has um, helped us with the boys a lot. She's really great with kids and um, it's been a slow transition as well in integrating her around the boys. Um, but she's also like a really good friend too. So it's really nice having that support and having like a circle of friends that, you know, we can rely on or if one of us needs a break, there's another place for us to go that doesn't have, you know, seven kids screaming. I'm sure you can probably hear some of them screaming in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that community, right. And building and cultivating your own community. And we know, you know, our, our families are, there's our biological families and then there's our chosen families, right. And those communities of support that we create, um, that help us weather the, the challenges and the storms and the ups and downs. I mean, you're talking a bit about spirituality now, and you've spoken, you know, before in previous interviews about the positive support um, that you've received both from the urban indigenous community and also the strength that you've drawn from culture and spirituality. And, and you've said one of those teachings has been, in your words, that children are a gift. Um, and so tell me a bit more about um, your indigenous support community um, and then spiritual practices and the role that spirituality plays within your life. Sure. Um, so... That whole part, um, children are a gift, was something that my dad always ingrained in me. Um, he spent a few of his um, years after, like I was born, and when my um, when the second oldest was born, um, she wasn't my dad's child, and he knew that deep down inside. But he still cared for her anyway for her first year of life. Um, and so he brings that up quite often in terms of like, you know, when children come around, regardless of um, their parentage or whatever, or like children are a gift, um, they're a gift from creator. And if we don't cherish them, like they are a gift every day, then sometimes they'll choose to go back to the land of the creator in various ways. So... Mm. I've always like really kind of clung on to that. And especially when we were facing the, the, the decision to take the boys in or to let them go into the foster care system, like that was one of the deciding factors for me. Um, because like no matter my situation, like I didn't want my brothers to go through the same thing that some of my sisters have experienced, um, especially like, yeah, especially since they're so young and we felt we had to at least give it a shot. Yeah, um, it felt like it was no other option, right? The only path that you were able to take was the one that you chose. Um, and as a psychologist that's worked for many years over the, the years in the past in the child protection system and, and foster care system, there are many cracks and gaps aren't there in that system. And, and so I can only imagine kind of your mind going to worst case scenarios and, and feeling like the only choice that you had uh, and that, want, that you wanted to have was to bring those boys into your home. Absolutely. as we, we think about your career trajectory now and just having completed your, your social work degree, first of all, a huge congratulations on that. Um, tell me about yeah, where, where you want your career to grow and, and you're very passionate about wanting to see policy and system changes to be able to better support families like your own. So, so tell me about that and, and what's on your wish list of, of the changes that you would like to envision? I think right now my biggest um, wish for would be for um, kinship families taking care of family members to receive the same supports as foster care 
um, as foster parents without having to jump through all the hoops, without having to constantly fight and advocate for um, supports in that sense. I was very fortunate to have been completing my placement at an Indigenous child welfare agency the same time that we we're facing the decision to take in the boys or not. So um, my connections through my placement really helped with us getting supports, even though um, even though we were well connected, it still took us six months, six months of being on a student budget, of having six, it was six kids back then, um, to feed and to clothe because they showed up on my doorstep with like a few clothes and blankets and like garbage bags, but they didn't have beds. They didn't have very many toys. They didn't, they definitely did not have enough clothes. Um, so that was, that was a challenge. Um, and I still feel that it shouldn't have to come to that. Families shouldn't have to, um, if they're taking in children that would otherwise go into foster care, they should receive those supports without question, without, you know, having to ask for it. Yeah, well, this kind of advocating again and again and again, right? And all that, I mean, energetically takes so much from us and, and um, I mean, just would have added so much to stress during a time when there was already so much stress and demand uh, for everybody, right? In your family, yourself, the boys, your partner, um, trying to adjust to this new normal. And, and what I'm hearing as you're speaking is kind of remove the unnecessary stressors, right? The things that we can actually do something about um, make changes in that arm of our system. Absolutely. Um, and also as well, um, I'm just trying to gather my thoughts here. It just, it takes away so much because like when, you know, you have kids who would otherwise go into foster care and they're being removed from their parent or parents they still carry that trauma of being apprehended. Like, even though it's not as bad or it's not um, as significant, like the boys coming to live with me as opposed to going to live with a stranger, there's still that trauma of separation there as well. Um, on top of all the other conditions that they had before coming to live with me, um, that they still need those supports. So yeah, how, for a system to say, you know, they want to keep children out of care, they should really be doing everything to keep children out of care. Because when kinship supports aren't being, when kinship placements aren't being supported properly, that's still creating a funnel into the, um, into the foster care system as well. Because when those placements break down, you know, if the boy's placement with me were to break down, they would still go into the foster care system. There's no one past me that's willing to take them in or is able to take them in um, in the same way that I have, let alone, you know, try to add Kate on top of that, on top of everything else going on. we even start Justine when we think of where those changes I mean such a complex system and complex circumstances if you were to identify you know your top kind of actionable things that you'd say if this 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 was done uh, what would those be education I'd say is important um, for social workers working in um, you know, with apprehensions and stuff. Um, knowing the difference between a customary care agreement and a formalized customary care agreement. Knowing the difference between um, kinship service and kinship in care um, is pretty significant. Um, or even having the option to be offered those supports from the get-go, from, you know, being asked to take in these kids if someone had sat me down and said, hey, look, you know, there's this option where, you know, you won't have a worker coming to your house um, every month, or you could have a worker come to your house every month and 
you know, these boys would be treated as if they're in care, but they won't technically be in care because the time spent in care won't accumulate. Um, you won't have to worry financially because they'll, you know, if you go through all this training and all these inspections and um, all these steps, like you'll be technically a foster parent and your home would te technically be a foster home. Um, that would have made a pretty significant difference for us in the beginning. Mm. Um, instead yeah, of and giving you way more supports there, right? In that situation. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. What, how are the boys doing these days? And what have been the ups and downs for them? And when you look to, yeah, when you look to their kind of emotional journey. I'd say every day is different. Um, it's interesting working with trauma because like, not only am I trying to work through my trauma, I have to recognize and figure out how to work through their trauma as well. Um, there are certain things that will still trigger them. So for the older boys, if I fall behind on the laundry, um, they've admitted like that's kind of a trigger for them. Um, keeping up a routine is super important. Um, we're trying to get assessments um, for some of the boys because there are slight indicators for possible autism, possible ADHD, but it's also very difficult trying to navigate, you know, figuring out um, there's indicators for this stuff, but what's also trauma that's disguising itself as indicators for certain um, things as well. Yeah, so absolutely. With Yeah, when we have that complex trauma, right? So, I mean, as you well put, so challenging to be able to differentiate what's a kind of illness or disorder or other diagnosis versus, you know, the very natural and in fact expected sequelae that we have when we're exposed to any kind of complex uh, trauma or, uh, you know, when our attachment, when our core primary attachments are disrupted for whatever reason. Yeah, it's quite... I don't know. It's quite uh, the journey and quite, um, I'd say day to day, everything's like my whole day can be different every day. Well, <laughs> dare I even ask how much you sleep in a day and what, and what a typical day looks like. I mean, it's probably no typical day at all with, with the seven ones in your house now, but what, yeah, give me a sense of how much you sleep and how the heck do you find any time for yourself? Um, I actually sleep like fairly well. I consider myself fortunate in the sense that you know, the boys know to stay in their beds and the youngest is two years old now. So um, he wakes up very early, but the other boys kind of, you know, keep him entertained in the morning. So um, I can sleep until like eight. It's a miracle. <laughs> but from there, you know, the boys will play in the morning and we're homeschooling um, throughout COVID um, because with my own health issues and my partner's health issues and some of the boys' health issues, it was just it was easier than trying to navigate um, the online learning component. Mm. Um, and especially like with our house, like our internet isn't very good and trying to put five kids on five different devices for whatever amount of time during the day just wasn't working for us. So um, we decided to kind of assert that sense of um, sovereignty and, move towards homeschooling and integrating more of the language, integrating more um, of the culture in their education. Mm. Um, so yeah, the boys will play in the morning. Um, they've been going to play in the forest behind our house, some of the older ones anyway. Um, and they really enjoy that. Um, after breakfast, we'll sit them down to do schoolwork. Um, they play a lot of games that are more education-based that they really enjoy. Um, they'll read. Sometimes we'll put on something educational on YouTube. They really enjoy Wildcats. The younger ones really enjoy Paw Patrol. <laughs> um, sometimes we'll get all fancy and put on something from APTN. Um, and then from there, like they play a lot. So they'll usually go back outside and play for another hour, hour and a half or so. Um, and then after dinner is usually kind of a downtime. So they usually opt to play more games. They usually um, will choose to read on their own or sometimes 
they'll even go play outside even though it's a bit darker they'll go play in the backyard for a bit so it seems really it seems it sounds like we have it more under control well i was gonna say you make it sound so easy <laughs> you you definitely do sound like you sound um, very calm <laughs> and you also really seem to have a fine oiled machine running at home it sounds like oh uh, we try yeah <laughs> there's, there's a few uh gears missing and it's definitely a challenge like we found a pretty good balance with them and some days like some days we don't get anything done like we'll wake up and the boys will be fighting each other they'll be um screaming they'll be tantruming they'll be just having complete like mental breakdowns and then on those days we kind of um try to keep our sanity the best we can um but on those days it's more you know focused towards stabilizing their mental and emotional well-being um figuring out what's triggering them figuring out like what we can do to help if it's like separating the boys for a bit, getting some of them to watch something, some of them to sit on the couch and read. Um, sometimes one of the boys just like didn't sleep well at all and they need a nap. So some of them will nap. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of hard to describe what chaos is because like some <laughs> days are really good and then other days it's, I'm sure parents can relate. It's just, it is what it is. <laughs> Yeah, is what it is, and it's getting through things sometimes just moment by moment, isn't it, Justine, to make it through the, the next meal or the next hour or the next day and, and one foot in front of the other, right? Yeah. Um, well, well, Justine, thank you so much for your time. I mean, my goodness, your your journey and, and resilience inspires so much admiration and respect, um, while also educating people about the challenges of our current system. Um, and I guess I'd like to close by asking you, you know, for our listeners, what one action would you suggest people start with when it comes to education? I would say follow Cindy Blackstock on Twitter if you have Twitter. Um, if you have Instagram, follow her on Instagram. I think she's on Instagram. Um, on Facebook, because if that's like one person I'm going to direct anyone to, it's Cindy Blackstock because um, the amount of advocacy and support she does for the child welfare system and child welfare reform is just astronomical. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for that. And we'll make sure we get all of those links and make sure those are available to, to everybody. So thank you so much for your time, Justine. Um, and thank you so much to our listeners for tuning into Tardigrade Talks. If you've enjoyed our conversation, we would love for you to subscribe and consider sharing Tardigrade Talks with a friend. We have a breadth of free resources designed to help you enhance your psychological health and wellness on our website, tardigradetalks.com. Thank you so much, and I hope you join us at the next episode. Wishing you psychological health, wellness, and resilience until next time. Thank you.